Good morning. I'm going to be reading the sermon text for today, which is Luke 5, 1 through 5. That's page 860 and 861 in your pew Bibles. So, once again, that's Luke chapter 5 and the first five verses. So, Luke 5, 1. On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, and he saw two boats by the lake, but the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. Getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, he asked him to put out a little from the land. And he sat down and taught the people from the boat. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing, but at your word I will let down the nets. This is the word of the Lord. I think I'm sure every time I'm here, I mention that this is like a second home, and it truly is uh, one of the wonderful things that's part of being uh, a part of the body of Christ is that you end up with lots of homes, if you know lots of other believers. It's an extraordinary blessing, and uh, Certainly is a blessing again to be with you this morning and to be back in Dansville. Matt basically already preached my sermon in his introduction, so I'm going to pray and we'll leave. Um, no such luck. Um, if you would open your Bibles to Luke chapter 5, what we just had read for us. Thank you, Andrew. Good to see you. Luke chapter 5. This is a very familiar passage, I'm sure, and because we just had it read, uh, pre read for us, I won't reread it right now. Um, and I, I hope that some of you who have been Christians a long time will not think this too basic this morning. I hope to show you why that's really necessary to not consider what we're going to talk about too basic, but uh, you'll see in just a moment. Uh, I've preached, as I know David has, and, and uh, all preachers do at one time or another, preach on the subject of faith. Uh, you preach on it as you go all the way through the scripture because faith is being brought up all the time in different contexts. And as Hebrews uh, reminds us, without faith, it's impossible to please God. Uh, those who would draw near to him must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Faith is central to the Christian life. Or think of this from Romans 3. I know you're familiar with it. Let me just remind you. The righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received, how? By faith. And so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. What then becomes of our boasting? Well, it's excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart 
from the works of the law. So this faith concept is absolutely vital to us in every conceivable way. And we must be clear on this issue of faith because our eternal destiny absolutely depends on it. There's no other way. There's no other way to be declared righteous before the judgment bar of God other than by faith. Now, I should give you a little background on this particular sermon because what originally occasioned me preaching from this passage specifically on this topic uh, was two things that happened in the moment. Uh, The first was, well, they both grew out of the same. There were two very popular movies that came out in 2014. Uh, One was Noah, starring Russell Crowe as a cranky, bloodthirsty, weird Noah, complete with rock monsters. And then there was the movie Heaven is for Real. Now, I gave poor reviews to both of those movies. Most of you are probably Christians who don't go to movies, so don't tell David that I was talking about movies. Uh, Burn this video when we're done. So nobody seemed to care too much about my review of Noah because everybody agreed it was just a crummy movie. It was just really lousy. It was ridiculous in places, and it was foolish. Um, But I got an inordinate amount of response on my blog to my review of Heaven is for Real, which was the story of Colton Burpo. And if you don't know uh, the story of Colton Burpo, uh, I'll come back and give it to you in just a moment. So the, but the truth is we need to be vitally careful about how we use biblical words and biblical concepts and use them the way the Bible actually uses them and defines them. Uh, We live in a culture where ideas, even from the Bible, are co-opted all the time and used for other means. Um, Take, for instance, the rainbow, which from Genesis we're all familiar with as the covenant sign of God that he will never destroy the earth by water again. That has been co-opted by the culture to such a degree that people don't even think in those terms anymore when it used to be quite common. And the word for the word faith itself has been co-opted by so many, by anybody and everybody. And the result is that faith has degenerated into a sort of uh, amorphous and undefined form of just general belief. And that having faith then in this general way is somehow sufficient for salvation. But as I've already read out of Romans, this is a critical gospel issue. Or as was repeated up here just a minute ago from uh, the group from the camp, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it's the gift of God and not a result of works so that no one can boast. So I want to go back and read to you a comment that was posted on my blog after my review of Heaven is for Real. I think this will illustrate it. And again, uh, Heaven is for Real, the book and the movie, are based on the experience of Colton Burpo. Colton was this, is the son of 
Todd Burpo, who at that point was a pastor in Imperial, Nebraska, and he had a burst appendix that went undiagnosed for about five days. As you might imagine, the little guy almost died from the lack of medical attention that he needed. Several years after recovering, though, he began talking about an experience that he said he had for about three minutes during his worst moments, and in those three minutes, he supposedly went to heaven and saw Jesus. And I won't go into the details about how he also met Jesus' horse, and he met uh, the Virgin Mary, and that everybody there had wings. Uh, it was all pretty bizarre, and it had nothing to do with what Scripture says about those things, but that was it. What was striking to me, as you looked at the things that were online, is how many people commented that their faith in heaven had been almost miraculously boosted by Colton's account. Now, why people would tie their faith to recollections of a fevered four-year-old boy rather than the Bible itself was a mystery to me. It remains a mystery to me. You would think that if we really needed information about what happens when somebody dies and the afterlife, that Lazarus would be the poster boy. He died for four days and came back, and yet the Holy Spirit didn't think that anything he might have experienced during those four days was worth recording in the scriptures for us. So something's wrong with all of these accounts of these near-death experiences and people who have died medically uh, and come back to life, and they come back with some pretty weird stuff like Colton did. I, I don't put a lot of, of uh, truck in all of that. So let me read you a quote from someone who really was upset about my bad review of this movie. It's a little bit long, but you need to catch the context here. This person wrote, quote, I'm a believer, and we just saw the movie and loved it. We're so sick of all the analyzing with all the books written and sitting here reading all the comments on my blog uh, regarding this boy's experience. I was a nurse for many years and have heard many wonderful spiritual stories of near-death experiences and have had one even in my own family. A four-year-old child to have such an imagination? Come on. You people are just like the ones who are skeptics and non-believers of Christ. Why do we make religion so difficult? With four question marks behind it. And with all the books so confusing. How did God communicate in the scriptures? With many dreams, if I remember. Actually, there weren't uh, many dreams. You can count them. They're pretty small. Um, explain to me how he was on the operating table and he saw his dad in the church showing so much anger at God by kicking the chair. You make the comment, Colton's account simply holds no authority. You use the words authoritative, and this makes no sense to me and many others. I just wish that people like you could just once say, hey, God is out there and there are many things we cannot explain. Let's just wait and see. This is the reason why people are pulling away from churches. They are so confused. I tell people who question me about my faith, keep it simple. Pray, praise, 
follow the ten, and love, close quote. Now, I'm going to come back to this quote before we're done, especially that last, last sentence. But I wanted you to know what got me kind of exercised on this uh, at the time. And, and this, the reason why people call faith what they call faith and whether or not that lines up with how the scripture gives us it's the, the truth about faith. And as I said, it's a, it's a subject that impacts the eternal destiny of every human being. So faith is a word that's used widely in our culture right now, uh, you, in ways that the Bible never employs. We hear about uh, faith traditions. We hear about uh, people of faith and faith-based organizations or faith-based initiatives. And we hear, we hear people saying that they have faith. Um, the guy who co-wrote and directed Noah, Darren Aronofsky, put his faith this way. I think this is really rather startling. He said, quote, I think I definitely believe, close quote. That, that was, I, I found that a little lacking, personally. That, that just seemed a tad lacking. Um, and so we have this very generic idea of faith or belief that is in fact completely foreign to the way that the Bible speaks. In surveying the scriptures, the Bible only uses the word faith in three very narrow ways. This is really important because again, as Christians, we want to use Bible vocabulary the way the Bible uses it. Um, and those three ways that it's used in the Bible uh, talk about Believing God in his self-revelation and what he has said so that we can order our lives accordingly. So, all of which is contained, number one, in the Bible, number two, in the revelation of his character, which we see in the Bible, and third, his communications, which come to us from the Bible, from the scriptures. So, that's that's what it means to have faith. Secondly, the Bible uses the term faith in the way that you read it in Jude, where Jude talks about the fact that we must be in the faith, or Paul says to examine ourselves to see if we're in the faith. And there the word is being used as the sacred trust of the gospel that's believed and the truth that's been committed to the church to to guard until Christ returns. And then there's a limited use. You'll find it only in the Old Testament where the Bible speaks about someone who keeps faith or breaks faith. And there it has more to do with the idea of faithfulness. So we read that Israel, when it turned to idolatry, God says that they broke faith with him. They were no longer faithful. But the Bible never refers, this is really important, the Bible never refers to those of other religions as having faith and never refers to those religions as faiths. It's just not the way scripture uses the term at all. This is, again, really important. Uh, and I'm probably send the letters to somebody else. Um, maybe you've heard the illustration that faith works like this. It's like sitting in this chair. I believe that it will hold me, and so I put my weight on it. We're almost there, but not quite there. Um, 
while I may believe that this chair can hold me, and for me, a lot of chairs are suspect in that regard, but um, while I may believe the chair can hold me, I, I have good reasons for why I believe that. They're not necessarily faith, not actually faith. Um, and where it differs from biblical faith is that I don't have a promise from God that the chair will hold me, nor is there anything in his character that leads me to deduce that it's necessary that the chair would hold me. Nothing in his word leads me to believe that the chair will hold me. I believe it based upon logic, but that's not faith. It's mere belief based on logic. It's not bad, it's just not biblical faith, not the way scripture uses the term. Good and hopeful feelings about the future or just feeling that everything's going to turn out okay. That isn't faith either. That isn't the way scripture uses the word. Every Christian ought to have a genuine hope regarding the future, but only as respects what it is God has said about the future and not because of some subjective optimism. Uh, so many times I've heard people say that they have a faith that a certain situation will turn out a particular way. And in fact, they're not expressing faith at all unless what they mean is because I know God is good and I know he orders all things for my good, I can trust that it'll end up that way. But, but usually we mean that in terms of a specific outcome. And it's true. I'll, I'll acknowledge that there are times when the Spirit gives us personal intimations of God's goodwill toward us in particular circumstances. But again, that's not faith. It's a little different. Faith, as we're going to see, is in him and not in those passing assurances. My faith, your faith, has to find its resting place in the word of God as it's been given to us. If we don't do that, when things don't turn out the way we had faith for, we actually begin to undermine our own faith. God becomes untrustworthy. I had faith for it, and it didn't happen. <laughs> Remember, before Sky and I got married, there was a, a, a gal in our church who was certain God had told her that she and I were to be married. She had such faith about this that she even went to my mom and dad and said, God told me that there's, well, yeah, I don't think her faith has worked out real well in, in that situation, unless I'm a bigamist, which I'm not. Um, so just hoping, and I, this is where it comes down where the rubber meets the road, just hoping that one is saved or in right relationship with God, or that their sins are forgiven, doesn't make it so. Now, believing the testimony of Scripture is what brings us to those things. And this is why the Bible can speak so categorically the way it does in Romans 10. That faith, this is, this is we must go back to this always. Faith, where does it come from? It comes from hearing and hearing what? The word of Christ. Now that's a pretty narrow thing. 
Now that, that can get applied in a number of ways, and we're going to see that in a moment, but that is where faith comes from in its essence. Do I believe that God is, that, that he exists, and that he's a rewarder of those that diligently seek him, like we saw in Hebrews 11? Have I confessed that Jesus is my Lord and the God whom I serve? Have I believed in my heart that God has raised him from the dead? Well, why do I believe those things? Because God's word says it so? Because I really know it to be true? Because if those are not your realities, you're not yet saved from the wrath of God, no matter what your profession of so-called faith may be. So this is really vital. Saving faith is not a feeling, but as Matt already alluded to, it's a settled conviction of the truth in believing the testimony of God in all things that he's revealed in his word. Let me repeat that. Saving faith is not a feeling, but a settled conviction of the truth rooted in believing the testimony of God regarding all matters he's revealed in his word. Anything less, anything else, is meaningless, deceptive human religion. And we'll talk about why that's so damaging in just a minute. So let's go back to our text. I want to unpack this text. It's short. I'm really only going to focus on one verse. It's verse 5. All of that was introduction. It doesn't count against my time, which is really good. So, uh, but we're going to get down to this in just this one verse. And Simon answered, verse 5, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing, but at your word I will let down the nets. And in this easily passed over account, we get three elements of genuine biblical faith that really serve to open up the reality of saving faith as few other places in Scripture do. And the first thing we want to note, if you're keeping notes and you're, you're filling in the blanks on the back of your bulletin, the first thing we want to note is who it was that was believed. Peter, as we enter into this particular scenario, is a professional fisherman. Uh, matter of fact, if you drop down a little further in the passage, picking up in verse 9, we read that he, Peter, and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish they had taken, and so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. Now, they had a fishing business. This is how they made their living, four of them, Peter and Andrew and James and John. This was, they were raised on the Sea of Galilee. They knew everything about the weather and the tides and how everything worked. This was what they were steeped in. Jesus, however, was not a fisherman. Jesus was a carpenter. And Peter might very well have said, look, I know who you are, but this is what I know and what I do best. And your suggestion, quite frankly, is uninformed and maybe not too bright. Uh, chronologically, Peter had already heard John the baptizer announce that Jesus was the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. 
By this point, he had already accompanied Jesus to the marriage in Cana and seen him turn the water into wine. He had witnessed a number of Jesus' conversations with other people, maybe even had heard the discussion with Nicodemus at night that you get in John 3, or the conversation with the Samaritan woman at the well. He, he wasn't unaware of who Jesus was, but here was a little bit of a conflict. And Jesus is about to call Peter and Andrew, along with James and John, to follow him, to officially accompany him as his disciples. So you want to look carefully at Peter's response. And it isn't, I'll let the net down because I believe in miracles. And it isn't, whew, I knew following you would bring blessings to us. And it isn't, woohoo, I've got a good feeling about this. That isn't what's going on in this passage. It is, I know this doesn't make much sense, but at your word, I'll let down the nets. It's because it was Jesus who said it. That's what made the difference for him. It was Jesus who was trustworthy. Peter hadn't thought this thing up on his own, he, and he wasn't about to act on a wishful hope that he had conjured up out of his own heart because as a fisherman, they had fished all night and hadn't caught anything, and he was really hoping that somehow he would catch something before the day was over so they had money to go home with. He was only saying what Paul was going to repeat in a different context years later. You remember it in 2 Timothy when Paul was talking to Timothy about how he endured the sufferings that he was going through. And he brings it all down and he says, listen, Timothy, I'm not ashamed for I know whom I have believed. Not what, I know whom. And I'm convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. Or consider Abraham. He's the poster boy for justification by faith. We read about this four different times in the scriptures. In Genesis, in Romans, in Galatians, and in James, we hear the same portion repeated four times. Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. It is never simply said that Abraham nebulously believed that wouldn't have been counted to him as righteousness. What was counted to him for, as righteousness was that he believed God. That was what was all important. And it's important that when we say we believe, we make sure God is the source and not our wishful thinking, not some subjective feeling or a word from someone else or a dream. The question always is, has God said this? Do I know it was God? And how do I know it was God? Can I go back and test it by his word? And if not, beloved, it has nothing to do with faith, no matter how comforting or pleasant or inviting it may be. Got to come back to who it is that speaks. I once, not that long ago, had a conversation with an elder of another church who was meeting with someone, and this someone who had been uh, 
a quasi-leader in the church was making a decision that was probably unwise and was definitely opposed by his very godly wife. And as this elder reasoned with him, his response was, Jesus told me to do this and I have to do what Jesus said. To which the elder responded, Jesus said, where? Did he say this in his word? No, just in this man's heart. And that's where things get dangerous. That's where we start walking down a mystical, superstitious road where Jesus might say anything in my heart. Uh, J.C. Ryle, no, John Newton mentions, it's how interesting it is that we always get the feeling that we're doing the right thing as God seems to put it in our heart that he goes along with everything we want to do. It's true. So Jude, when warning about false teachers in Jude 8, he says, quote, Yet in like manner these people also, relying on their dreams, defile flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones, close quote. He doesn't deny that these people may have dreams. He just categorically rejects relying on those dreams for truth claims. And so should we. They aren't reliable. For me, if I want to dream, I know what to do. I tend to, I have a pretty rich dream life. I enjoy my dreams. My dreams are interactive. I can wake up, go get a drink of water, come back and pick up the dream where I left off. I enjoy my dreams, they're fun. But I also know that I can fuel my dreams. How do I fuel my dreams? Eat cheese before I go to bed. I know it. And then it's technicolor all night. I mean, it's sight and sound that is just lovely. But I can't rely on those things for truth claims. It doesn't work that way. Our faith, first and foremost, must rest in Jesus, in God, and what we can verify that he has said. And for this, we absolutely need to retreat to the scriptures, no matter how attractive or how rational or how convincing it may seem. If, if I had a dollar for every broken heart I've met with because somewhere down the line, God told them something, and then it didn't come to pass, and then they struggled believing God in his word because those things had ruined them for trusting him. It's at this very point that Adam and Eve fell, isn't it? They, they wavered in who this God was that had spoken to them. That was the question that Satan asked. He, he started off with the material part. Did God actually say? But it's not the data at this point that's the real problem. It's the trustworthiness of the one who had spoken that Satan was calling into question. Isn't God hiding something good from you by giving you this command? Isn't there some darkness in him that, that can't be trusted? It's why John emphasizes in 1 John 1, 5, this is the message that we heard from him and proclaimed to you, that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. He can always be trusted. He's always truthful. And if he's truthful and I trust what he has said, then I can know that those things will come to pass. But if I can't trust the character of God, 
that I won't trust what he says either. Genuine faith always begins here. It must be God who has spoken, the God revealed in the Bible, and it is that God whose word must be trusted above everything and everyone else, or it's not faith the way the Bible counts it faith. Point two, this one will be shorter. We have to look at what it was that was believed. Now, Jesus didn't tell Peter a whole raft of things here, just a couple of very simple and quick instructions. Verse 4 picks it up. When he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. Here's the point. Peter's faith and ours is limited to what God has said and not what he hasn't. So, Faith begins on knowing both who is speaking and what they've actually said. When we set our hopes on things that God never actually said or meant, then we set ourselves up again to undermine our own faith. And so this requires that we spend a lot of time in the scripture and that we use the tools to read the scripture carefully and interpret it correctly so that so that we don't set our hearts and minds on fabrications on hopes when we set our hopes on things that god never said we're in trouble how many and i don't know if you've got any friends or relatives or you've interact, interacted much with mormons but how many will pay large sums of money in mormonism to go through meaningless rituals in the temple to be baptized in the place of dead relatives because they never took the time to understand the Holy Spirit's words through Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, 29 and built a doctrine then on a single obscure passage of scripture. And it can happen to us too. If I've heard, I don't know how many times I've heard sermons out of Malachi on tithing. Oh boy, I'm getting myself, Dave, just forget this part, okay? Um, it's an Old Testament, Old Covenant requirement, but it's not part of the New Covenant. And yet people will bring others under condemnation and guilt. Now, do I think we should tithe? Oh, I think we should do a whole lot better than that. I think scripture calls us to call to to give out of the generosity of our hearts and not be limited by a quota. That's another story, another sermon. I'll come back and preach that, Dave, later. So that so that I set this all right. <clears throat> How many parents have felt deceived because they absolutized a verse like Proverbs twenty two six? train up a child in the way in which he should go and when he's old he'll not depart from it and they have treated that genre of scripture which is wisdom literature they've treated it like case law and said this is an absolute promise when that's not the way wisdom literature works it's an indication of a tendency or a usualness but it's not a promise and yet many a parent has gone can I really trust God if I raised them in the Lord, but they went awry? I don't know. 
Ask God how he felt about Adam. No one was ever more perfectly parented than Adam. And it didn't take long for Adam to go astray. A while back, I talked with a saint, uh, an elderly man. He had served God well over 60 years, faithfully. He had preached and taught the word of God. But he, was, he had hit a crisis point. He was struggling in his life. And it was over Psalm 37, 25. You know the passage. I've been young and now I'm old, yet I've not seen the righteous forsaken nor his children out begging for bread. And as, he, as we talked, he said, look, I've got an adult child. I've served God all these years. My adult child professes saving faith in Christ. But he had gone through some terrible financial difficulties, made some really bad decisions and ended up in need of food stamps. And so this older saint was conflicted over whether or not all of God's promises could be trusted because his, his son was now needing food stamps and his mind was out begging for bread. Now, it, it's true that the righteous will never be forsaken and that the offspring of the righteous will never be lacking for the bread of life in Christ. But it's not true that the righteous will never endure financial hardship or even famine. Talk to Christians throughout history that have experienced those things. We know that can't be what the passage is intimating as an absolute promise. And so he was beginning to undermine his own faith, the faith that he had taught and preached for 60 years. So we must not only know what a passage says, we need to know what the Bible actually teaches and how that passage fits into the, the greater scheme of all that God teaches in the Bible. Just a quick, for instance, here's a little snippet. I don't know about you, people do this. They'll take one little verse, just a snippet of a verse, sometimes and kind of pin it up and say here it is so if you read this little snippet out of Isaiah 520 I can quote for you out of Isaiah 520 call evil good and good evil that's what it says in that verse it's just not all it says in that verse it says woe to those who call evil good and good evil and so much of Scripture has to be put into its fuller context if I'm going to understand it correctly. Or haven't you seen people appropriate Philippians 4.13? I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And it has nothing to do with sporting events. It has nothing to do with losing weight, doing well on a test you haven't studied for, launching a new business, snagging the husband or wife of your dreams, or anything else. It has to do with being able to suffer both times of prosperity and poverty in the cause of Christ. But if I don't stick to the context, if I don't understand what the Bible's actually teaching in that place, I'm going to make a hash of faith. It's not going to be true faith at all. You could multiply these examples endlessly. Faith must always has, have at its base a, a, a sole foundation on what God has said in his word, and that has to be responsibly interpreted. It's got to be put into its rightful place.
which leads us to our third situation. In order for faith to be actual faith, it has to have this third element. We need to notice that faith, and Matt brought this up as he was doing the introduction earlier, faith is never divorced from obedient action. So, how what Jesus said was responded to is your third point there. There's no place where this is more true in salvation, but let's look again at the text. Picking up in verse 5, Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing, but at your word I will let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish and their nets were breaking. So, it worked like this. It is you that has spoken, I got that, and I understand correctly what you've said, and now, Lord, I let down my net for the catch. Salvation doesn't only come from knowing what God has said about repenting from sin and trusting in Christ as my sin bearer. I do need to know that data. That's absolutely true. Nor does salvation come only from believing that those propositions are true. The demons can do that. James tells us that you believe God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and they shudder. Satan can do those first two. He can know what God has said and tell you that it's the truth. But the demons can't do the last part. Because salvation actually comes when I truly trust Christ alone and cast aside all other means of trying to be approved by God. I must rest my full weight upon him and what he has said. Faith must believe God and understand what he has said and then result in ordering my life accordingly in order for it to be biblical faith. Now, the older theologians used to break this up by using three Latin words. They loved Latin. They liked to confuse us. That's the way older theologians worked. They liked to toss out big words. These aren't big words, but we'll use them anyway. They're three Latin words. The older theologians always talked about faith as having these three elements. Notitia, that's the data. We must understand the message, what has to be believed. Secondly, a census. That is, I have to give assent to what's being said. I have to agree that it's the truth. But third, there must be fiducia. I must act upon it as true and trust myself wholly to Christ. And again, this is going to come back and play a role for believers as well by the time we're done. James Montgomery Boyce uses a wonderful example in this regard uh, with a young couple who are in love. Andrew and his bride just got married not that long ago. This is how this works. A young man proposes to his girl. He asks her, will you marry me? Now, that should be understandable data. She knows what the question is, and she knows who it is that has asked it. And then hopefully, she says yes. Let me give you a little thing out of when Sky and I met. We met on the Internet. Uh, just don't tell anybody. And, and, uh, and it was long distance. I was living here in, in Rochester. She was living down in Washington, D.C. And so we started corresponding, and then we started telephoning back and forth. And then one night on the phone, I professed my love for her. 
and her there's silence just dead silence on the phone the one thing you don't want is silence i've just laid my heart bare i love you and it's like hello are you there it's it's and then after this little brief silence was i need to hear more of your sermons i didn't want that one either you know so anyway, getting back to the illustration here. So the young woman hopefully says, yes, she did say yes when I asked her to marry me. Uh, that's another story we won't go into. But so she agrees. But they aren't married yet. They aren't married until they walk the aisle and say, I do. Until they actually commit to one another with solemn vows. They are married until that third step happens, and that's the way it is with the gospel. We hear the message that Jesus died for our sins, bearing, bearing the just wrath of God against us that day on the cross. And so we start, do I, do I believe that's true? Do I understand that message, and do I believe it's true? Then all that remains is to obey the gospel and actually trusting Christ as my sin bearer and giving up hope for every, anything else that I may have trusted in. Any religion, any good works, God just being nice or me not being all that bad, everything else has to go out the window. Let me, let me quote it to you from Spurgeon. He did it so much better than I can. This is an extended quote, and I won't charge you extra for it. It's just worth it, okay? Spurgeon put it this way, quote, what is faith? It's made up of three things. I know he's right because he agrees with me. It's good. Okay. It's made up of three things, knowledge, belief, and trust. Knowledge comes first. How shall they believe in him of whom they've not heard? I want to be informed of a fact before I can possibly believe it. A measure of knowledge is essential to faith. Hence the importance of getting knowledge. Know the gospel. Know what the good news is. How it talks of free forgiveness and of change of heart, of adoption into the family of God and of countless other blessings. Endeavor especially to know the doctrine of the sacrifice of Christ. For the point upon which saving faith mainly fixes itself is this. God was in Christ, reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them. Know that Jesus was made a curse for us, as it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Drink deep of the doctrine of the substitutionary work of Christ, for therein lies the sweetest possible comfort to the guilty sons of men, since the Lord made him to be sin for us, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Faith begins with knowledge. But the mind goes on to believe that these things are true. Then the heart that believes that Jesus is verily and in truth our God and Savior, the Redeemer of men, the prophet, priest, and king of his people. All this is accepted as sure truth and not called into question. Only one more ingredient is needed to complete it, which is trust. Commit yourself to the merciful God. Rest your hope on the gracious gospel. Trust your soul on the dying and living Savior to wash away your sins in his atoning blood. Accept his perfect righteousness and all is well. Trust 
is the lifeblood of faith. There's no saving faith without it. Lean all your weight upon Christ. Cast yourself upon Jesus. Rest in him. Commit yourself to him. That done, you have exercised saving faith. Faith is not a blind thing, for faith begins with knowledge. It is not a speculative thing, for faith believes facts of which it is sure. And it is not unpractical dreaming thing, for faith trusts and stakes its destiny upon the truth of revelation, close quote. That is so good. You should have written all that down while I was giving it to you. Now, again, as we started, if all of this seems a little too basic to you, too academic, forgive me. Don't be insulted. I'm belaboring this on purpose. Because my personal experience more and more is that this understanding of saving faith is all but disappearing in our day. It's being replaced by a reliance on good feelings, on a a trust in God just doing nice things for us rather than real saving faith. And my fear is that many who imagine themselves to be Christians are not. Not as the Bible would have it. Because they don't have saving faith. I read a book just a year ago given to me by a friend where he built the case for so many in our churches having been Christianized over the years but never having become Christians for they've never exercised personal faith in the gospel and in the Christ of the gospel. And that might be you this morning. You may have been sitting in Christian pews for 10, 20, 30, 50 years, and you've thought because you're sitting in the pew and you go to a good church and you read the right translation of the Bible and you hear good preaching and you mingle with good Christian folk, that that has made you a Christian, and it doesn't. Have you believed the truth of the gospel and trusted Jesus Christ? That's the question. I wouldn't have anyone leave here today as a Christian in name only, as though Christianity is just your choice of religious expression. You're not a Jew, you're not a Muslim, you're not a Hindu, you don't believe in Baha'ism, so you're just a Christian by default. Or you think you're a Christian, as I said, simply because you walked the aisle once or signed a card or make some vague profession of faith or prayed some prayer, but when all is said and done, it's made no difference at all and you've never really trusted him. And in truth, you have no living, vital, real relationship with God in Christ at all. Today's your day. Today's your day. You've heard the truth of the gospel, and it's come from his word. Believe it and cast yourself on him. Now, in closing, let me go back to the comment from my blog that I mentioned earlier. I want to point out just one thing that illustrates the confusion on this point in such a clear way. Just the last sentence the commentator wrote. Again, quote, this is the reason why people are pulling away from churches. They are so confused. 
I tell people who question me about faith, keep it simple. Pray, praise, follow the 10, and love. Now, do you see it? No wonder she hated my review so much. What's her religion? It's in that last sentence. Praise, pray, follow the 10, and love. No cross, no substitutionary atonement, no gospel. Pray, praise, follow the 10, and love. And I might add, if that's all, end up in hell. It's not faith. It's a self-imagined religion of good works and niceness. I'm going to skip a whole bunch here and just move us down to the end. I want to apply this to we believers that are here today. Perhaps you're already a believer. I pray you are. But you've struggled with doubts about your salvation. Maybe you've been exposed to teaching that leads you to trust in some activities, uh, rituals, or the like. Uh, the settling, rather than settling the whole of your trust in Christ alone. Maybe your own performance. Telling you that you need to add something to Christ in order to genuinely be saved. Let me take you back to our analogy about marriage. Once you've said, I do, to your husband or wife, you live in that I do for the rest of your life. That's the way that works. You don't leave the altar after getting married and then go off and date other people. And that's the way it is with saving faith. Once we've cast ourselves upon Christ alone, we don't go back to rites and rituals and practices, but we remain in the perpetual I do of faith, trusting Christ alone and his righteousness for our right standing with God the Father. And I know it's really tempting, especially at times when we've failed, when we've sinned, and the flesh wants to devise ways to get back to God and get ourselves into his good graces by making deals or, or promising him things or, or going, you know, I'll never, I'll never play golf on Sunday again, God, if you'll just forgive me and, and, and let me feel your presence again. And it leads us to trust in something other than Christ and his sacrifice alone. Or maybe, maybe you've been influenced like those in Galatia where Paul had to write, having begun in the spirit, are you now trying to finish in the flesh? Can that possibly work? Or maybe, maybe you're one of those and your faith has been damaged because you've had quote-unquote faith for things God never promised in his word. And when they failed to come to pass, even though you felt so strongly that it was really him, it impairs your ability to trust him to this day come back. Come back to the basic and put all your trust only in him and in his revealed character and in the verifiable promises of his word. And there your heart will be restored. This is the secure place. This is the place of blessedness and peace. It's the place of living 
in reality as God knows it. It's the place of rest and joy in the certainty that only he can give.